Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast presents Stories from the Cabin, a storytelling podcast within a podcast, featuring tales from the countries and cultures whose people make up the diverse region we know as Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobbitt. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of Stories from the Cabin. This month's episode is going to be a little different than the episodes I've done in the past for a number of reasons. Mainly, there's going to be a larger housekeeping section up front, but also because I'm going to be talking about folk creatures and the folk customs surrounding them, which is my hobby when I'm not talking about Appalachian folklore. But as you'll hear, is how I actually got into the folklore of Appalachia in the first place. The selection of stories I'm going to be reading from this week are from a field guide to demons fairies, fallen angels, and other subversive spirits by Carol K. Mack and Dinah Mack. I got this book in my sophomore year of college, of undergrad, right around 2003-2004, so about 20 years ago. And as I said on Twitter when I asked if anyone had ever heard of this book or ever read it, this is the book that got me into spirits and monsters, world religion, folk creatures, and then, eventually, a broader understanding of what folklore is. The book is broken down into specific locations where these creatures can be found. You've got water, mountain, forest, desert, domicile, and psyche. Within each chapter, the authors give a list of the creatures that can be found in each of those specific areas. Each folk creature is then given a little blip about what it is, some lore associated with it, and then, if applicable, dispelling and disarming techniques. The folk creatures I'm going to be covering today are from North America, obviously, because that's where I am, and some of them are going to be creatures found in an indigenous culture's story, whatever that culture might be. And this is where I want to cover my tale a little bit. For those of us who are very conscientious of indigenous cultures, especially here in the States, We try not to respectfully tell stories or tales from closed cultures. And what a closed culture is, the long and short of it, it's an indigenous culture that keeps the stories of their ancestry from their ancestors, the stories of their people, to themselves. It's not for outsiders' ears. Unfortunately, for better or for worse, a lot of the indigenous cultures, folk creatures that we are familiar with, were taken from those cultures and now are part of the overall folklore of the United States. The one that pops to mind readily is the Wendigo. Stories of the Wendigo are in movies, in books, in video games, but specific stories of encounters with a Wendigo should stay within that culture's folklore. So what I'm going to do today is read a story from this book. What I'm not doing is giving you an example from a closed culture or indigenous culture's folklore concerning first-person or second-person accounts of encounters with this folk creature. The book also refers to some of these indigenous cultures' folk creatures as demons. That is the word in the book. It is not my word. It is not my belief that these, quote, evil entities are demons, how each culture refers or believes that entity to be is solely on that culture, 
as we know from around the world and stories just because a creature is considered evil because it kills and eats things that we hold sacred doesn't necessarily mean that that culture views it as evil overall look for example at loki in nordic mythology he's a trickster he's not necessarily evil or the character of satan the adversary you can't have good without bad you can't have dark without light he exists to fill a role and it's not our place to refer to something in a culture that is not our own as good or bad or evil based on our own culture's definition of those concepts. I would also like to throw in a trigger warning in the tale of the Changing Bear Maiden. There is human dismemberment mentioned in the book. The dismemberment uses terms that may or may not be appropriate for children depending on how you raise your child and their age. It's not my place to say. So when I get to that tale, you do what you want to do, or you can listen to it, or you can skip right over it. It's up to you. Should any of these creatures ring a bell with you from stories you've heard in your own culture, your own family, your own life, do please reach out to me. I want to hear the stories. I want to hear how you have fairy lore in your own culture and how it relates to the stories I'm telling you today from North America. I say it at the end of every episode. You can reach me on the social media and via email if you listen that far. So I'm going to go ahead and put it in right now. You can contact me with those stories at App Folklore Pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I'm most active on Twitter. Or please email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com. I want to hear all of your stories, always, all of the time. So without any further ado, I would like to read to you a handful of stories from A Field Guide to Demons, Fairies, Fallen Angels, and Other Subversive Spirits by Carol K. Mack and Dinah Mack. Tommyknockers. The Tommyknocker is an American mining species that seems to have originated in Staffordshire in England, where they were known as just plain knockers. The Tommyknocker stands about three feet high, about the size of a three-year-old, and has a disproportionately large head, long beard, and weathered wrinkled skin. Their arms are long enough to reach nearly to the ground. They wear miniature mining outfits, caps and boots, and carry mining gear such as pickaxes. They are usually invisible to the human eye, so it is only by the sound of their tapping, knocking, and working in various shafts nearby the human workers that one knows they are present. They can be helpful or malicious, but they are always mischievous. This temperament can be hazardous in mine shafts. The Tawinakers are believed to have originated as ghosts of men who died in the mine in the past. They work like demons all night long. Lore In northern England, home of the original knockers, the spirits often served to warn of disaster about to happen by knocking mysteriously and alerting the miners to aberrant sounds. Once in a while they could be helpful, as in the case of Blue Cap, a famous knocker who appeared as a blue-flamed light that flickered through the mine, landed on a tub of coal, and mysteriously moved the heavy tub as if by the force of many laborers. But when playful or vengeful, they would steal candles and hide tools, and, at their worst, set the mine on fire. Tommyknockers do not like to be seen by humans, and often react with extreme volatility and capriciousness when they know they've been spotted. One story tells of a coal miner whose load so outdistanced the others each morning that his fellow workers wondered how. 
He never seemed tired or overworked, and when asked how he managed to do such a hard night's work, he simply shrugged. Some co-workers crept in one night to see what was happening, and there was their friend sitting, smoking quietly in a shaft. When they peered over his shoulder, they discovered a huge team of Tommyknockers working for him. The Tommyknockers, according to this report, wore tall red hats and used miniature mining equipment. Soon as the wee demons realized they'd been sighted, they turned on their mortal companion in a fury, perhaps thinking he told his friends about them, and within moments the entire mine erupted into flames. Other knockers, called Koblenai, haunt the mines and quarries of Wales and point out ore by pounding or knocking on the walls. They are said to be half a yard tall and hideously ugly. They imitate the miners in dress and carry tiny work tools, picks, and lamps. They work constantly, but never get anything accomplished. If not treated with great respect, they are known to cause rock slides. Their German cousins are the kobolds, demon miners who take pleasure in malevolent games and trickery. And the Wichtlein, little whites, tiny men with long beards, said to be death portents. The Wichtlein announced death by knocking three times on the wall. Dispelling and Disarming Techniques There's no getting rid of Tommyknockers or their European counterparts. However, it is clear that when they choose to be helpful, one must respect their privacy and keep their presence a secret to avoid fatal accidents. Yunwi Junsti The Yunwi Junsti, or little people, of the Cherokee is a fairy species about two feet tall with long dark hair that reaches to the ground. They are said to wear white clothes, but tend to be invisible to the naked eye. Other than their size, supernatural status, and invisibility, they are very much like the Cherokee themselves. They speak the same language, sing similar songs, and even design their social structures in an identical manner. There are four varieties of Yunwi Junsti. One kind lives in rocky cliffs and hard-to-reach craggy mountainsides. They make their homes in the rocks, sometimes with many chambers and always with well-swept floors. The second variety make their homes outdoors in rhododendron patches. The third live in scrub brush. The fourth reside out in the open. The four varieties differ in levels of malevolence. The little people in the open air and scrub brush are said to be unusually mean, while the other two varieties can sometimes be helpful if treated nicely. Ordinary humans rarely see the Yunwi Junsti. It is considered bad luck to see them and is always a portent of death. However, twins can see them and frequently speak with them. Certain conjurers can even capture them for hard labor around the house. Often, though, the species is so arbitrarily mischievous, delighting in tripping people, making household items drop and break, and wreaking general havoc, that even the most powerful conjurer may be forced to put them back where he found them. Sometimes the Yunwi Junsti get travelers lost in the mountains, and they often lure children away from their families. As in most fairy abduction situations, time spent with the little people leaves the victim insane. One little boy was with them for weeks, and upon return, he behaved like a wild creature. Time spent with the Yunwi Junsti can often lead to death. Sometimes, for no apparent reason, the little people pick on one person and make his livestock sickly, ruin his roof, and generally make his life a misery. Conjurers would have to be called in to help. 
Sometimes the little people bother travelers by throwing invisible sticks and stones at them, or pushing them down a mountain trail or off a cliff. One rock held caves so chock full of Yunwe Junsti it became quite famous, and people came from far away to drum on the rock and listen to the creatures inside dance and sing. But all fairies resent disturbance, and one tourist kept it up too long, until finally a horde of little people came out and fell upon him. Dispelling and Disarming Techniques It is bad enough to see any little people, but far worse to speak about it. Often it is after the telling that the victim dies. It is usually fatal to enter their homes and harmful to disturb their privacy. It must also be remembered that if a human being finds a lost object in the mountains, it is always the property of the little people. Permission must be obtained to take it. Because the little people are invisible, it is easy to forget that they are eavesdropping, but they hear every single word said about them. Windigo The Algonquian Windigo, or Witiko, is a seasonal subarctic man-eating species. During the winter moons when food is scarce, there is a fear of the creature. With cadaverous body and face out of an Edvard Munch portrait, highlighted with horrid glaring eyes, the Windigo have been described as giants with hearts of ice. Many who have been in close proximity to them have experienced chills and the sense that their own hearts were freezing over. The Windigo uses trees as their snowshoes and cover vast distances in a single step. As they travel from victim to victim, blizzards accompany them. Naked and gaunt, the entire species stalks the forest of the north in search of human flesh. Lurking silently in the shadows of trees, tall as the old timbers themselves, a Windigo has a scream that paralyzes its intended meal so that it cannot escape. Once it is upon its prey, a Windigo rips out vital organs in seconds. When sated, packs of Windigo have been seen playing catch with human skulls. It is a remorseless beast that will devour its own family. In the land of the Cree and Ojibwa, the Windigo are believed to once have been normal human beings who have become possessed cannibals. The Windigo can infect the human, and therein lies the unique power suggested in the double meaning of its name. The root word is Algonquian, for both evil spirit and cannibal, so Windigo describes both a demon and a way of acting like one. Any person possessed by this cannibal spirit has literally become a Windigo, and is probably incurable. Some people choose this transformation, others happen upon it. The later cases are caused by being bitten, by dreaming of the Windigo, or by being involuntarily transformed by a malevolent sorcerer. Voluntary Windigo are individuals who go into the forest, fast for several days, and offer their flesh freely to the species. A Windigo may adopt such a person as its own child. The possessed human grows a heart of ice, becomes notably hirsute, has a craving for raw human flesh, and behaves like the demon itself, although he never attains the full height of the supernatural being. The earliest sightings of the species are reported by Jesuit missionaries in the 1600s. The Hudson Bay Company diaries of the 1700s mention the species quite often. Lore Once, in the darkest depth of winter, a woman saw a father and daughter return to her village alone, without the rest of their family. She wondered what had happened to the others and became suspicious. 
She therefore made the entrance to her home slippery by pouring water on the threshold until it froze into a high sheet of ice. Then she went to bed. But instead of going to sleep, she waited tensely with an axe in hand for their attempt on her life. Just as she thought, the daughter approached at midnight, and the old woman pretended to snore as the windigo-possessed girl came closer and closer. Then, suddenly, just as the girl was about to spring for her throat, the old woman raised her axe and killed the creature. The father, who had been waiting outside, crept in. By then the old woman was able to escape, and she hid to watch what happened next. She witnessed the windigo-possessed father devour the corpse of his own daughter. Dispelling and Disarming Techniques The only known way to avert windigo possession is to throw excrement at the creature. This confuses it enough for a small window of escape. If that method doesn't work, the next choice is to go immediately to a local shaman. If he cannot help, the last resort is to kill the possessed person, cut the body into pieces, and burn it to kill the spirit so that it does not infect others. Some say a silver bullet can also be effective. Changing Bear Maiden Changing Bear Maiden, the quintessential demonic female of the Navajo, is first glimpsed as a model housekeeper. She is a gentle, beautiful virgin, an orphan, who can be seen in the kitchen preparing meals for her twelve good brothers. When next seen, she is filled with wrath and the spirit of revenge and has shapeshifted into a lethal she-bear. Lore Changing Bear Maiden lived with her loving brothers, twelve skilled hunters and excellent providers. The sibling family lived in harmony until one day, Changing Bear Maiden became the object of the notorious trickster Coyote's desire. After many tests, she agreed to marry him, much to the horror and resentment of her brothers. Her nature changed as she fell under the control of the seductive, lusty Coyote. One day the brothers were going off to hunt and tried to leave Coyote behind. He begged them to bring him along on the hunt, and at last they gave in. After a while, they could no longer tolerate his mischievous ways and sent him home with some meat. They instructed him to go around the Forbidden Canyon and not to cut across it, but Coyote did not heed their warnings and was killed before arriving home. The story of his demise is recounted in many ways, but the brothers were not responsible. It was night when the brothers arrived home. Coyote had not yet returned. Their sister asked where her husband was. The brothers answered that they had warned him not to enter the canyon, but that he probably had, and many have been harmed. What have you done with him? Changing Bear Maiden asked angrily, in a voice her brothers had never heard before. She was certain that they had killed her husband and was filled with rage. Before they went to sleep that night, the brothers sent the youngest to hide and watch their sister. He saw her rise up and face the east. Then, moving the way of the sun, she turned and faced south, west, and north. Then, changing bear maiden, pulled out her right eye tooth and replaced it with a large tusk. Then she did the same with her left eye tooth. He then saw her remove her lower right and left canine teeth and replace them with tusks made of bone. No sooner had she begun to pull her teeth out than hair began to sprout from her hands, and as she continued, the coarse, shaggy hair spread over her arms and legs and body. The youngest returned to his brothers to report what he had seen, and was sent back to the hiding place to view more. 
His sister continued to move in the direction of the sun, pausing to open her mouth at each direction. Her ears grew and began to wag. Her nose changed into a large snout. Her nails turned into large claws. The youngest brother watched until dawn, and then went back to report what he'd seen to his brothers. As he spoke, a she-bear suddenly rushed past the lodge and followed the trail that Coyote had taken the day before. At night she came back wounded, but they all watched from a hiding place as their sister, who had been a bear, walked around her fire, removing arrowheads from her body. The next morning a she-bear rushed past the lodge and again returned bleeding and spent the night magically healing her wounds. This continued for four days and four nights, until she had killed all those responsible for Coyote's death. Meanwhile, the brothers, fearing for their lives, fled. They left the youngest brother at home. When they were gone, the wind came to help the youngest brother dig a hole under the center of the Hogan, and from this dug four tunnels, each branching off in one of the four directions. When morning came and Changing Bear Maiden returned and found that her brothers had all departed, she poured water on the ground to see which way they had traveled. The water spread out to the east. She rushed off towards the east, overtook the brothers who had gone in that direction, and killed them. Again she poured water, and for the other three directions, found her brothers and killed them. Finally she poured water, and it sank into the ground. Changing Bear Maiden quickly dug downward, and there she found her youngest brother hiding beneath her. She greeted him and told him to come up. She held out her finger for him to grab, but the wind warned him not to accept her help, but to climb out of the hole by himself. The youngest brother climbed out of the hole and walked toward the east where Changing Bear Maiden tried to lure him to the deserted hut, but the wind warned him not to enter, so he passed on. His sister then asked him to sit facing west so that she could comb his hair, but the wind warned him not to do it because it was late in the afternoon and he would not be able to see her shadow. He was advised to sit facing north. When they both sat down, and as she touched his hair, he could see her shadow transform as her snout grew longer, and he could see the shadowy wagging of her ears. The wind told him to get up and pointed out the plant in which Changing Bear Maiden had hidden her vital organs. The boy ran to the plant, despite many obstacles that sprung up from the ground and he could hear her lungs breathing in the plant before him, and shot his arrow straight into the plant. The bear woman fell to the ground with a stream of blood flowing in two directions. The wind told the boy that the two streams of blood could never meet, for if they did, his evil sister would be revived. The brave brother cut off her breasts and threw them into a pignon tree that had never borne fruit, and they became pine nuts. Her tongue became cactus, and her vagina the yucca fruit. He cut off her head and it became a bear and walked off into the woods, first promising only to attack to protect its species. The wind helped him revive his siblings. They all built a new hut. Then the youngest brother went off to live at a place called Big Point on the Edge, which is in the shape of a Navajo hut, where he still believed to reside today. Disarming and Dispelling Techniques It is the youngest brother who, with innocence, courage, and unselfishness, acts as a hero in this tale, and finally transmutes the body parts of the destroyed demoness into useful, nurturing animal and vegetable life. Often the sheer animal energy of the demon lives on after the quelling, and must be dealt with later. 
Sometimes the remains must be burned or reburied, and sometimes, as in this case, they seed and create good things. Lou The Lou is a bayou werewolf species that originated in France. The name may have come from a shortened form of Lou Gardez-vous, which means wolf, watch out. It is a person transformed either by a spell cast by another or by choice, which entails rubbing the body with a special kind of grease, into a creature notable for its fiery red eyes, body hair, large claws, long snout, and mean disposition. The Lugaru is seen frequently at special dances in Bayou country, in which cavorting in wolf style and acting wild is the common practice. Each Lugaru is said to own a bat the size of an airplane that serves as its transportation. They fly them to other people's homes and drop down the chimney into the bedroom. There they bite the sleeping human victim, who wakes up the next morning as one of them. Disarming and Dispelling Techniques The Lugaru is terrified of frogs and will run away if a frog is hurled at it. Like many other demons, the Lugaru can be easily tricked by a simple household colander or sifter hung outside the door. It will become so involved counting holes it will forget its original mission. It is said that if one could manage to sprinkle the Lugaru with salt, the demon will catch on fire. It will then immediately discard its blazing animal hide like a snakeskin and resume its human state. And there you have it. Those are my five selections from A Field Guide to Demons, Fairies, Fallen Angels, and Other Subversive Spirits. I'd like to thank Welsh correspondent Bethan Briggs-Miller for the pronunciation of the Welsh fairy Coblenai. If any of these tales triggered a memory in your own head about creatures you heard about from fairy tales you were told as a child in your own culture, do please reach out to me because I would love to hear those stories. Again, all of my contact information is available at the outro of the show. Thank you so much for popping by this week. I always appreciate it. I will see you on February 1st for the next installment of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. And until then, y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to like, review, and subscribe to this show on whichever platform you use, I'd greatly appreciate it as it helps spread the word. And after all, isn't that what folklore is about? You can find the Appalachian Folklore Podcast on social media at appfolklorepod. You can also email me with questions, comments, corrections, stories, recipes, etc. at appfolklorepod at gmail.com. And you can visit my website, shows.acast.com AFP. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the Appalachian Folklore Podcast cover art. The intro music is Stillness by Rivio. The outro music is I Can See the Sky by All Sever Lake. You can find all citations to the references mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Thanks again for listening.